So what are the things needed to survive? FCS, or as I'd like to say, food, clothing, and shelter. We know our society has recognized these essential basics of life as important, just not important enough to ensure that everyone has those things. Now that we're in a global pandemic, access to these basics is even more of a challenge. Exacerbating an already long-standing and deep-seated problem, food insecurity is growing by the day. What are the conditions for the people who harvest the crops? The economy is still in rough shape, and somehow Congress can't get another relief package together. Does that mean thousands of families are going to be on the streets as we battle COVID-19 and as the weather gets colder? Today, we look at the essentials of survival and attempt to see not only what the problems are, but how they can be fixed. Frankly, they're worried regardless of the moratoriums, because when people are faced with losing their house, it's a very scary time for them. That is Shola Corey from the AG's office who works on a program called Keep Your Home New Mexico. Over the next 60 minutes, we will hear from her and many more about problems, programs, and resources. Did you know that in 24 of the 43 states in Washington, D.C. that enacted eviction moratoriums, the measures have expired? That's according to data compiled by Eviction Lab, a Princeton University research project, and Emily Benfer, a law professor at Wake Forest University School of Law. The rent is too damn high party. People are working eight hours a day and 40 hours a week to some a third job. Women can't afford to take care of their children, feed their children breakfast, lunch, and dinner. My main job is to provide a roof over your head, food on the table, and money in your pocket. The rent is too damn high, damn high party. You said it, the rent is too damn high. Rent, mortgages. Today, we're starting off with shelter. My next guest is Steve Johnson. He is the CEO for New Day Services. Steve, welcome to the show. Thank you very much. Glad to be here. So New Day works with young people who are without shelter or who may have run away from home. Now, during the pandemic, did you see more young people coming in for help? That's what I expected to have happen. But people aren't moving around as much as they did. And they're not connecting with people. They're not finding out about what's available. And I think they're more locked into situations and maybe not very healthy or safe situations. Yeah. And as a result, I'm a little concerned that they're in some ways not accessing as many services as they might need to. Yeah. And some of those unhealthy situations you speak of is something we covered in your New Mexico government, talking about the spike in domestic violence and sexual assault at home. I know that's something that a lot of the population you work with goes through. Tell me about some of your greater concerns. What happens is the young people that we work with typically have long histories of trauma, meaning that they have experienced a wide range of different kinds of experience, not just a singular incident, but probably a whole lifetime of family members with drug abuse, domestic violence, child abuse, parents in prison, all sorts of issues like that that start to shape their world and get them thinking about how the world really is. What happens is that you can kind of normalize that, start to think that's just the way it is or that it defines who you are as a person. And unless you can enter something that gives you a different picture of who you are as a person or sees you differently, sometimes you stay in these dark situations. So it's a real challenge for young people to actually get outside. That's why it's useful if they're going to school, if they're out working, they actually find out about things like New Day and can get access to it. If they don't, they may be normalizing what's happening to them and staying in some pretty dark situations. Let's talk about like some of the mental strain. You know, what are some of the mental health challenges that these young folks who are in already tough situations, let alone a pandemic and then a racial justice uprising, what are some of these mental health challenges the young people you work with are facing? 
If you think about what happens with young people normally when they're 16, 17, 18, 19, is they're working, they're going to school, they're socializing, they're getting in trouble, they're doing all those things, and that's how you sort of individuate and you learn. So how do you individuate and learn when you're in this environment? It's amazing, though, how creative some of these young people are. I think they definitely deal with depression, and they definitely deal with a sense of sort of being lost and a kind of anxiety about the world. And there's a lot of fear around, and they certainly aren't exempt from that. However, I do want to say that I am constantly amazed and constantly impressed with young people. If you see them for who they are and what they're doing, and you say it out loud to them, and you speak consistently about their greatness, it's amazing that they will rise to that. If you set the context for something higher, they will rise to that because they are hungry for it. So I've watched our young people. Yes, they deal with all this mental health stuff, and I've also seen them move through it and rise above it. They do need support. We all need support. Yeah. You know, we talk about young people becoming independent. But if you think about it, nobody's independent. No. We're all interdependent. We all need each other. Yeah. We all need help sometimes. So yeah. teaching young people to learn how to ask for help and then teaching adults how to give the right kind of help and the right kind of feedback. I've seen the magic of that. And even in the pandemic, I see it, yeah. which is great. That's funny. You mentioned independence and my grandmother, she passed, but 109 years ago, she was born today. But she said something very interesting about independence. She told me this when I was 16. She said, no one becomes independent on their own. For anyone listening, how can someone get a hold of you all at New Day? Uh, you can go to our website, ndnm, like newdaynewmexico.org. Or you can just email me, Johnson at ndnm.org. That's S-J-O-H-N-S-O-N at ndnm.org. Excellent. I want to thank you so much for being with us, helping out the young people and being an inspiration for us all. He's Steve Johnson, CEO of New Day Youth Family Services. Thank you so much, my friend. Thanks, Cliff. Great questions. A pleasure to meet you. Worries about facing eviction and foreclosure for homeowners and renters is growing with each day. With the continuing daily reality of the pandemic, many are at a loss and are in the need of help. I spoke with Chola Corey, director of the Attorney General's Office of the Consumer and Environmental Protection Division with Keep Your Home New Mexico. I asked her how Keep Your Home New Mexico got started. The Keep Your Home New Mexico program was a foreclosure counseling and prevention program that was funded for our office and a number of other states' attorneys general offices that really came out of the 2008 mortgage crisis and out of the national banks settlements. And so it was funded in part by grant money. Okay. Um, and it was really targeted at helping people avoid foreclosure. For those people who were getting close to foreclosure, are getting close to foreclosure, it's targeted at helping them figure out what the next steps are. Why is it a part of the attorney general's office? Well, we do consumer protection in general and consumer mm -hmm. protection is very broad. Really, we look for ways that we need to help New Mexicans and whether that's with dealing with banks and learning how to keep their homes or whether it's pursuing companies that misrepresent and defraud consumers you know it covers all all of the bases are you seeing a lot of people use the program at the moment prior to the pandemic we had seen kind of a wind down in complaints coming into our office those complaints through the pandemic are staying steady we're getting a lot of calls with regards to questions about the eviction moratorium mm -hmm. and the foreclosure moratorium just kind of questions people 
people aren't quite sure what to do, how to do, and who to talk to about that. Do you get a sense that the people who are calling you are incredibly worried about the next few months, seeing that Congress has yet to pass another package? I think that's right. I think people are very worried about that. Frankly, they're worried about it regardless of the moratoriums, because when people are faced with losing their house, it's a very scary time for them. Are there additional funds available during the pandemic? Does that put a financial crunch on the program? The program actually ran out of grant money earlier this summer, but we're continuing to offer those services. The office doesn't provide any funds to consumers. What it does is provide counseling and resources for consumers who might be facing foreclosure. Now, if people want to reach out about it, how do they do that? Contact our office on our website, which is www.nmag.gov. There's forms to fill out and request assistance in this area. Right now, because of the pandemic, we're not taking walk-ins in any of our offices. The best way to get a hold of us and to request help is filling out one of those forms on the website. She is Chola Corey, Director of the Attorney General's Office of the Consumer and Environmental Protection Division slash Keep Your Home New Mexico. Thank you so much for being with me today. Absolutely. Do you like the show? Do you want to share an episode with a friend? Maybe someone thinking heavy thoughts about rent this month. You can find us online at KUNM.org and you can subscribe anywhere you get your podcasts. Or just make us your social media connect on Facebook, Twitter, or Insta. Check us out. Just look up No More Normal or Nomono. Next week, we're talking mental wellness and we want to hear from you about some of the ideas and actions you've taken to stay mentally and energetically afloat during these turbulent times. Here at Nomono, we've made it a point to cover the stories of people who are without shelter during the COVID-19 pandemic. Estimates say that number is about to go up. KUNM's news director and reporter, Hannah Colton, brings us a snapshot of what it's like out there on the streets five months into the pandemic. I met Billy Brown where he was settling in for the night, outside a barbershop near downtown Albuquerque. It was dusk and light rain fell off and on. So we get a bunny here to keep us out of the bad weather, the rain and stuff, so our little uh, blankets and stuff doesn't get wet. A couple other people sat or laid under the little overhang roof too. You can hear their music in the background. Brown is 65. He carries a paperback Bible with him and two different canes. His vision is impaired, says he can barely see me a couple arm's lengths away, but he's figured out ways to get around as safely as possible. And I use that so I can tap and make sure I'm at least three feet away from the curve. Because any further than that, you're getting out on the road and you might get hit. Brown is from Roswell. He's been in Albuquerque without a home for about two months, he says, since his sister and her boyfriend dropped him off. I thought that was very rude of him, but I got to make the best of what I have. And we as human beings, we are survivors. As a species, we are survivors. Each day, he says he's on the move, trying to find food, a change of clothes, a shower. But even when he finds a place to get those... Sometimes they have so many strings attached to going there that it's not even worth going to get. He was sleeping in shelters, but he says it can be degrading. Well, they don't like me being at the shelter because I am 85% visually impaired. I need assistance to get to the bathroom and then back to my bed area. And I may not be that familiar with the place and I might lose my area so someone has to take me. And that makes me a little bit more of a liability. 
People sleeping outside in Albuquerque have faced city workers coming and breaking up their encampments. Despite CDC guidance that says doing so could worsen the spread of the virus and cause people to lose contact with service providers. City officials say encampments pose their own health risks and that a better place for folks to be is at the city's 450-bed West Side shelter on the outskirts of town. Brown has spent some nights out there. Besides being treated like a liability, he says he had a bunch of cash stolen there. And the last straw was being hassled by a staff member on the bus that takes folks out to the west side in the afternoons. He said something smart to me, but I won't be able to get on the bus because I just finished smoking a joint. He said he smelled it on me. He says he got on the bus anyway, told the shelter staff to call the police if they wanted, but that he needed a place to stay for the night. So he stayed. In the morning, I called the police on myself so that they could come there and I could leave with no problem. And they escorted me out. And I haven't been back since the west side. I asked Brown if he's had other interactions with the police. He says once he fell on the curb in town and a police officer picked him up and took him to the hospital. So my experiences has been good, but then I can't speak for everybody else because usually the cops do mess with people a lot. And especially homeless people, they look at them as go-to targets. To avoid being targeted, Brown says he's careful about how he acts and what he says when police come around. It's better if you act a little bit ignorant, because that way they're not as hard on you. And I do that and I use my handicap being visually impaired in my defense, because it's a tool that you can use. And Brown is hoping to get his social security check, leave New Mexico, and head north. Says he's got friends in Minneapolis who will hook him up with housing. As for COVID, he says he's not too worried about catching it, but he does wear a mask and stays away from risky stuff like sharing a pipe or a cigarette. If you don't take care of yourself, who is? God helps those that help themselves. The state has made hotel rooms available for people experiencing homelessness who test positive for COVID or may have been exposed. The department says they know of about 2,500 people in that situation who weren't able to safely isolate in a home. The next day, I met 78-year-old Anne Marie Newcomb across the street from a church near downtown. She laid on the sidewalk on a blue blanket in the heat and told dirty jokes, winking at me after each one. And I'm the real deal. The reason I'm here is I'm trying to get my service dog back. She says her chocolate brown dachshund, Brutus, was stolen about a month ago. When I had him, he was up to snuff on all these shots. And he loves me. Yeah. And he's trained because he knows I fall. And he stays right by my side and barks trying to get somebody's attention to help me up. My best friend. And these assholes stole my dog. Newcomb has been sleeping on the street because she says the shelters treat her terribly. She can't get around too well with a bad leg. In the years she's been without a home in Albuquerque, she says she's had nine cell phones stolen and had all her clothes and prescription meds taken. Well, they haven't stolen my sense of humor. But I get sick and tired of this shit going on. Can't say I don't try. She showed me her one bus pass tucked under her sock, saving it for when she really needs it. These are my few belongings. I don't have a lot. I got some juice, some water, and fruit cup, and some candy bars. And I like a good hot meal. And I don't eat anything late at night, because that means I'm going to have to poop somewhere. 
and I'm not about to just poop somewhere. The city of Albuquerque has installed porta potties around town since the start of the pandemic, but they're few and far between. Newcomb said she had to go behind a tree just that morning. Catching COVID is not high on her list of daily concerns, but she wears a mask and says she tries not to touch anything that anyone else has touched. And when I can, I wash my hands frequently. Yeah, boy. Newcomb says the most help she's gotten has been from church folks who put her up in a motel for a couple nights. She loved being able to watch TV news and the Weather Channel. Hell, I didn't hardly sleep. I was seeing what was going on in the world. While we talked, a young man walked by looking for a spot to shower. Newcomb recognized him, teased him a little, gave him directions. You get down around the Greyhound bus station and you go two and a half blocks. For now, Newcomb is just making it through each day, cracking jokes, praying for her dog, and trying to find him. For No More Normal, I'm Hannah Colton. With an eviction crisis looming, it's time to examine the data to learn who is bearing the brunt of the burden. Joining me is Stephen Brown. He's a research associate with the Urban Institute, a Washington, D.C.-based think tank focused on economic and social policy. Stephen, thanks so much for being with me. Happy to be here. So an estimated 22 million Americans are behind on rent. What are we facing as a country if we don't figure this out? Well, we are facing a massive and unprecedented eviction crisis. With this many people behind on their rent, without further protections, either through policy or through some form of rental assistance, you know, in the next few months, we will see millions of people, as you point out, potentially at risk of losing their homes, which will have all these spillover effects on their abilities to keep their jobs, to keep their kids in school. This is a huge, huge issue that our country is facing right now, because once they become homeless or they lose their house or lose their apartment, the opportunities to find new housing become that much more difficult and it will put them into a cycle of instability that might be much harder to break once they're into it. And 40 plus percent of black and Latino renters say that they likely couldn't make rent next month, according to the Institute's research. And only half as many white renters have said the same thing. Do you all have a sense of why that really might be the case? The primary reason will have to come down to financial resources. Hmm. White families have 10 times the wealth on median as black and Latino households have in this country. And of course, you know, as we know, we're very much in the midst of an economic crisis where millions of people have lost their jobs. And if millions more have lost not just their jobs, but lost also their income from their work. So even if they've been able to stay employed, mm-hmm. they've had hours cut and they don't have much to sustain them. Of course, we've also had the most generous unemployment insurance we've ever had, which has helped keep many, many families afloat during this period, being able to pay their rent and support themselves. But the fact of the matter is that people of color, on average, have less income. Since they have less wealth, they are also in a position of being able to weather these kinds of pitfalls and these kinds of setbacks. You know, we're talking about survival basics on the show this week, food access, housing. You know, what else is the Institute seeing in the numbers using the Household Pulse survey? What we're seeing for food insecurity is about 19% of U.S. Hispanic households and about 20% of U.S. Black households reporting that there was often or sometimes not enough food to eat in their household in the past week. So when you think about that, a fifth of families, black and brown families, Mm. in the past week reporting that they didn't have enough food to eat. And this is from the most recent wave of data we have from the tail end of July. 
And this compared to only about 8% of white families. And there are some places where these disparities, these gaps in food access are even worse, right? So these are a natural level trend. Again, this goes back to the wealth and it goes back to the assets and the financial disruption of this moment, where in the early part of the crisis, if families had a furlough and were able to get unemployment insurance or they were able to get unemployment insurance, but you know, they're still struggling. Mm -hmm. We have research that showed that people drew down the bulk of their savings in the early parts of the crisis. That black and brown families drew down the bulk of their savings mm. in the early part of the crisis. So as you get towards the tail end of the crisis, what will happen is that people have fewer resources to draw upon. You know, so our data do not yet allow us to look at what happened on the other side of this July 30th deadline when all these families lost the additional unemployment insurance. And yeah. so we still don't have a good sense yet of how those families are coping now. But it's also helpful to clarify, right, is that if a fifth of black and brown families were struggling before the loss of the pandemic unemployment compensation, before those you know additional supports, mm-hmm. we can only imagine what's happening now that so many of those families, they're still unemployed, and the black unemployment rate is falling more slowly than it is for other families. If they're still unemployed, that food insecurity is only going up right now as we speak and we just don't have a clear sense of how bad it is but based on what we're saying i think we can be pretty confident that things are worse now than they were a few weeks ago now what do you all hope that this research will achieve in the end you know the reason we're trying to take the work that the census and other federal agencies have done and put it out there in this way is because we want to influence policy now right yeah and we see in the data that things can change relatively quickly our understanding both what these policies mean uh, for families and what it can do for families is really important to helping policymakers at the national state and local levels think through how they should be adjusting and reacting, what tools they can employ right now to help families who are struggling. Yeah, something that immediately needs to be done. Well, I thank you very much for being on the show. Thank you for breaking down this data and research. He is Stephen Brown, research associate with the Urban Institute in Washington, D.C. Thank you again, Stephen. All right, thank you. With the layoffs and furloughs occurring around the country, many people have been kicked off of their health insurance or simply can no longer afford to be insured. As a society, the politicization of health care has been in the spotlight for decades, and the push and pull from policymakers created a deadly opportunity for COVID-19. But I can operate. I can take it out for good. No, no surgery. My mom's insurance, it only covers emergency room visits. My stupid blood is a pre-existing condition. Pre-existing condition. We called your mom. She would say, let's figure it out. No, no, my mom already works three jobs just to keep me in food and clothes. Okay, the surgery will, will put us 20 grand in the hole. Just let me out of here. We're talking health care for the next part of the show. Oh, my next guest is Ed Williams, a reporter for Searchlight New Mexico. He's got a recent piece titled An Anything Goes Situation. Ed, thanks for being with me. Thanks, Khalil. So in your story for Searchlight, you start with the story of an 87-year-old woman who had COVID and who was dropped off by an ambulance at Canyon Transitional Rehab in Albuquerque. She gets handed a huge stack of papers to sign in. What was among those papers? Well, tucked right in the middle was an arbitration agreement, which is basically a voluntary form that asks you to waive your constitutional right to a jury trial if anything goes wrong. I mean, these are standard documents that nursing homes all over the place use, and they've been you know, under fire by advocacy groups and the ACLU and the American Bar Association because 
the consensus among defense attorneys and, and advocates is that they basically give carte blanche to these nursing homes to abuse and neglect with no risk of you know, any kind of legal accountability. Mm. So those agreements, they weren't always legal, but now they are. What changed? What's the history with that? Well, they were banned by the Obama administration, and there was an injunction in place stopping them from going forward for a good while. The nursing homes, the trade groups and nursing homes in general basically took that to court immediately. It never went into effect, and then Trump just throughout that appeal and basically told nursing homes last year, you can go ahead and use those arbitration agreements as you see fit. Why are they seeking this type of protection if their charge or mission statement is to give quality care? Why are they seeking said protections in case they don't? It's, you know, it's just the way that they've they've operated. I mean, they're for-profit companies and it's a high-risk job, especially now in COVID. And there's a high probability that if you abuse or neglect someone, you're going to face a lawsuit. It's just the way that they've been doing business. These are for-profit nursing homes that I'm talking about. They just seek to enter into these voluntary agreements in order to protect themselves from any potential lawsuit in the future. I mean, sometimes... People are able to get these cases tossed out, but studies in the past by legal organizations have found that there's a greater chance of getting struck by lightning than actually winning or any kind of monetary compensation after you've signed one of these agreements. With those kind of odds, I don't know if I want to send one of my loved ones to one of those facilities <laughs> listening to that. You know, at Canyon, the one in question is run by Genesis, which is a chain of aforementioned for-profit nursing homes. What has the Department of Justice said about those places in the past? A few years ago, the Department of Justice forced Genesis to pay a pretty big settlement. It was almost $54 million after investigators there found alleged violations of the False Claim Act, misrepresenting their filings with the federal government, fraudulent billing practices, and that sort of thing. Genesis never admitted any wrong. They just paid a huge settlement, but the Department of Justice called out the company as a, a, quote, unscrupulous provider that provides grossly substandard nursing care Mm. to its clients. Mm. That's pretty strange because Canyon got a contract from the state to house elderly patients with COVID. Did you reach out to the governor's office for comment about why she signed up to give this company $1.3 million in April to do this? I did, and we didn't get any response. We tried over and over again. It's one of the big mysteries that I still don't have an answer to is why this particular facility with such an egregious history of health and safety violations and the lowest possible score from the Centers for Medicaid and Medicare Services in terms of its health inspections, why would a home like this get a contract to deal with literally the most vulnerable New Mexicans in a time. It's a life or death situation for these people. And and there are lots of nursing homes who have much better records. So we don't know. I mean, one hypothesis that I can't confirm is just that she delegated it to the secretary of uh, the Department of Health, Kathleen Kunkel, who probably just maybe didn't know the history of this company. I'm not sure, but it is a very strange agreement to come to. I mean, we're talking about $44,000 a day just in New Mexico taxpayer money to house these COVID patients. And that's in addition to reimbursements from the federal government, from Medicare. And Mm. remember, Medicare reimburses based on the severity of the person's medical needs. So all of the patients that are coming into this facility are going to be the highest billable acuity rate. So they're making a fortune at a time when 
there's hardly any inspections going on and there's it's really a black box in terms of whether or not they're following the appropriate rules inside of the facilities as they're taking on this very serious responsibility for COVID patients. New Mexico is not really in good shape when it comes to severe health and safety violations in nursing homes. What does ProPublica's data show? New Mexico a few months ago had the most health and safety violations in the country in terms of an average per home. I think now there's another state that's tied with us, mm. but we have a long-standing problem with infection control violations. And when I say infection control, what I mean is rules that would prevent the spread of infectious disease, washing hands, you know, sanitation, making sure that catheters and other things are appropriately applied and Mm -hmm. these violations have been widespread and really just kind of thought of as a cost of doing business no fines are ever really levied against the companies for infection control they might get a citation and then say that we've fixed that practice but you know statewide 85 percent of the nursing homes in new mexico have been cited for infection control violations and 14 out of the 15 homes that have seen coronavirus cases or at least as of the time I wrote the story, had previously been cited for infection prevention and control. And the one exception was a brand new center that hadn't been inspected yet. So it could be that they had all violated these rules. Now we're in a situation where you can see why infection control is probably the most important rule that needs to be followed. I Mm -hmm. mean, we're talking about a highly communicable disease. We're talking about it among a population who is by definition suffering some sort of health problem. So It's just been one of those things that that has never been taken seriously. And now now we're dealing with the consequences of that. Do you think this creates an access issue when it comes to elders seeking health care during this pandemic? The reality is, is a lot of these nursing homes are the only places available for somebody to get rehabilitation. Like, say you broke your hip and you need to do physical therapy or something. A lot of that takes place in a nursing home. Mm. But here's the thing about the way that nursing homes are set up in New Mexico and elsewhere. The homes that we're talking about that have really abysmal health and safety records, the ones that are run by Genesis and others, these are homes that specifically focus on Medicaid patients and Mm -hmm. Medicare. I'm generalizing here, but the homes that have better safety and health records are the ones that you pay a lot of money per month to to live in. And so we have a system that's really discriminatory based on wealth. I mean, if you're rich, then you can afford one of these nice homes with a good record. But if you you have to bill Medicare and Medicaid to get your your health care and your nursing home care, then you're likely going to be funneled into one of these systems, one of these homes that has a questionable health and safety record. You know, one of the biggest problems that these homes have is staffing. There's been problems with being short-staffed, chronically short-staffed, and Genesis homes especially, and Canyon included in that, but in for-profit homes across the state. When your business model is to squeeze a profit out of a federal subsidy like Medicaid, the only way to really do that and improve your shareholders' portfolio, to improve the profits that the company's making, is to cut staff to the bone, where mm. you're not having to pay employee hours, health benefits, and all those mm. other things. 
that makes you earn more profits. It also puts your residents at a lot more risk. I mean, we've talked to Genesis employees, I'm picking on Genesis, but this isn't just a Genesis problem, who say that they are cut to the bone and at minimum staff, even during the COVID crisis, to where they're literally running from one room to the next without time to wash hands, without time to do any of the proper infection control practices. It's a picture that's never really been addressed. And the federal government suspended the staffing reporting requirements during the first quarter of this year as the pandemic set in. And so we don't know whether or not Canyon and other companies that are running nursing homes during the pandemic are still continuing this practice of understaffing in order to maximize corporate profits. But all of the analysts and all of the observers I talk to say that it's all but certain that that's the case. Your story came out in early July. Has there been any response or change in New Mexico since then? We've heard from family after family who have loved ones, relatives in Canyon, and some in some cases in other nursing homes, mostly run by Genesis, say that they're continuing to have major problems with their loved ones in in the nursing home. I mean, you know, not getting showers, but once every three days, you know, nobody answering the call light, all these problems that point to, you know, likely understaffing continuing. We can't prove any of that because we don't have access to what's going on inside the nursing home. And Genesis, consequently, we filed an IPRA request, a public records request with the company because they're performing a state function and should be Mm-hmm. You know, subject to IPRA. Uh, they said that we're not subject to IPRA. Ask DOH. Department of Health doesn't have any of this information. So uh, it appears that the problems are continuing. And I should say that Genesis did send uh, an email to us and all of our media partners who published the story, strongly objecting to our conclusions and saying there were strong factual inaccuracies in the story, but they couldn't point to any actual factual inaccuracies. We don't know what the change has been. The numbers seem to be trending in a positive direction in terms of the number of new infections. So, you know, hopefully New Mexico stays on the good trajectory that it's been in in the last few weeks and that'll trickle down to the nursing homes. Let's really hope that that happens. I want to thank you for your reporting and thank you for being on the show. He's Ed Williams, reporter for Searchlight New Mexico. Thanks again, Ed. Thanks, Kuro. We reached out to the governor's office for comment about the concerns raised in Ed Williams' story for Searchlight. A spokesperson there said that they meet routinely with the company to talk about care. The state does check to make sure that the facility is in compliance with PPE, infection control, and resident care. Any reports of abuse and neglect are investigated within 48 hours, and they encourage anyone experiencing any problems to reach out to the Ombudsman. The state's Division of Health Improvement or Adult Protective Services will post the full comments from the state on this post online at KUNM.org. This is Nomono. For this episode, we're talking survival basics. We led the show with shelter. Now we're talking healthcare. And in the next half hour, we'll be talking food, not recipes, but access. In the next 30 minutes, we will hear from the Secretary of Workforce Solutions, organizers for farm workers, the Roadrunner Food Bank, and more. Stay with us. No More Normal is brought to you by your New Mexico government, a collaboration between KUNM, New Mexico PBS, and the Santa Fe Reporter. Funding for our coverage comes from the New Mexico Local News Fund, the Kellogg Foundation, and KUNM listeners like you. Support for public media provided by the Thornburg Foundation. Fall is coming. That means the smell of roasted green chilies is in the air. But have you ever thought, what are the conditions for the people who pick and grow those chilies. With me right now is Ismael Camacho. He is with New Mexico Legal Aid, where he serves as staff attorney for the Farm Worker Project. Ismael, thanks for being with me. Pleasure to be with you. So 
tell me about the situation on the ground right now for farm workers in New Mexico. So we have, in essence, three sets of agriculture workers who come work in New Mexico. But the ones that have a common shared experience are those that are commuting from the border between New Mexico and Texas. And those are usually brought in from El Paso, Texas, into the state of New Mexico. And then you have another interesting population of Lafayette Puerto residents and even U.S. citizens who are actually living abroad in a small town called Palomas, Chihuahua, which borders Columbus, New Mexico area. Both those set of groups are basically transported from the border crossing points right around 3 o'clock in the morning. Most of those individuals start their day at 1 o'clock in the morning. So you have to wake up at 1 o'clock in the morning wow. to transport yourself to the crossing area. And then you have to wait there for people to transport you at about 3 o'clock in the morning. Those individuals who are transported from that area are brought into New Mexico in vans. And the reason that's important is because, as you know, we're supposed to be practicing social distancing, the yeah. six feet apart rule. Yeah. Well, that's virtual impossibility for them because they're in the van with more than one individual. Mm. And so that's, I think, a significant risk to them. So then the third group is the ones that are local. So you have, you know, workers who are seasonal workers who live in New Mexico and they provide their own transportation to the field site. What is interesting to me is that there's, it seems like a new practice where most of the farm workers are arriving at the fields before the break of sunlight. And because of that, a lot of the workers are buying their own lanterns to use to see what they're picking. Mm. So the onion workers, they have two shifts. They have one that starts two o'clock in the morning and then they go till about 11 o'clock in the morning and then they go home, rest till about in the evening sometime. So then they would work again till about two o'clock in the morning. Wow. So basically <laughs> you have these people who are out working, I mean, just these huge number of hours. Mm-hmm. Now talking about the COVID situation, have you heard any complaints from the workers that they don't have adequate PPE? Are they being provided that from the farmers or is that something they have to provide for themselves? So I'm doing in-person outreach. So I, I, thanks to a generous contribution by the Hispanic Philanthropy Association, they gave us 5,000 facial masks to mm-hmm. distribute to farm workers. So we're actually going to the fields and giving them facial masks. And it's been my experience that most of them do not have facial masks. But one farm labor contractor that we arrived, we said, you know, we're here to give out facial masks. And he says, oh, you know, I, I was going to provide those to them, but my order hasn't come in. So I knew he tells us this, right? So we we run into him again and again, no, no face masks. So we said, you know, well, do you mind if we just give them facial masks? And he goes, no. Question for you. If one of the agricultural workers gets sick and they need to take time off, is it possible for them to be housed separately from other workers so that they can recover and not spread the virus? And if they can do that also, can they get unemployment? Is there some type of protections given to them? So the ones from El Paso, yeah. they commute on a daily basis and then they go back. So if they get sick, they're just going to go back to wherever they live, um, either in El Paso. We have tried to also include with some of the information that we have, share the information that's provided by the CDC. The only other information that I have from an El Paso worker is that there was an El Paso worker who died of COVID. Mm. We have not been able to substantiate where he contracted it, if it was in New Mexico. The only ones that we know that are provided housing is the migrant workers. So some of the migrant workers come from Texas and California. Mm. They are being housed at a motel 
And again, I think that if they were to contract it, there's no way for them to be separated because the, when I went to, there was a big family of about, altogether there were probably about 12 members in the family hmm. and they were all sharing basically two hotel rooms. And so again, it came as if you were to be unfortunate to contract it, yeah. there's no way that you'd be able to even self-sequester or anything like that. At all, at all really. Not at all, yeah, you can't do it. There's just not, I mean, I mean just, Thank goodness they haven't got it, but you know, if they yeah. did, then it was just going to be a disaster. Do they have access to COVID tests? No, that's another oh. problem. It's really frustrating, you know, trying to help them out because everybody's going through this COVID thing, right? So there is some rural health clinics until recently decided that, okay, well, maybe we should target them and provide free testing to them since they're out there, you know, working on our behalf. Mm-hmm. But that's just a recent event. But some of them, we, I reached out to them and they said, no, we're not going to do it. I I mean, you know, just because they don't want to endanger their staff. Wow. And so, farm worker, you know, they're hardworking individuals. Mm-hmm. And, you know, are you going to give up a day to go get yourself tested when you could be working? Yeah. You know, plus, there was a free testing that was provided by the Catholic Services and the local health department in Emmy, which is relatively close to Palomas, is about maybe 40 miles, something like that. But you would have to either transport yourself on a Saturday, lose that day of work to go get tested, you know? Yeah. And so a lot of them are saying like, you know, work, I need to work, you know, and plus I don't have transportation. It's not like they have their own vehicle. Yeah, it becomes an arduous journey just to get tested. Exactly. What type of strategies are the farm workers themselves? What are they doing to keep themselves safe? And who else is working on this to make sure that they have, I mean, aside from yourselves, but they have PPE, that they have access to testing and just general protections in case, you know, there is an outbreak that occurs. So there's a healthcare provider who has been around for a very long time, programmed by the name of La Clinica de Familia. They're a real health clinic. The one thing that gives me some degree of hope is that they may implement a mobile kind of center, and so they might have the capacity to actually go to the work site. And then they also teamed up with an organization called Tierra del Sol, which provides free housing to farm workers. Mm. They're going to open up their housing to these rural health clinics and say, hey, look, we have a group of farm workers here that you can come down and provide testing use, you know, and have a coordination. So all that is a recent development. Originally, very few of us were going out to the fields yeah. to talk to the workers. What's next for you all at New Mexico Legal Aid? I'm old school. So when I first started, even though I was an attorney, then I started in 1979 mm. with a program called the Southern New Mexico Legal Services. And so it was a farm worker project. So it was a big program. Mm-hmm. And so now I'm, I'm in, so yeah. you don't have to do the whole thing by myself, which is much more difficult. But because of that, I think that one of the things that I need to look at is to get the word out, to figure out ways of how to reach them more easily than having in-person contact. Because mm-hmm. there, there's still a limitation, even when, when I'm out there. Yeah. You know, it, the limitation is that you don't want to interrupt their work. I mean, you know. Yeah, yeah. Anytime they stop working is costing them money. So we try to do the encounter as briefly as possible, give them information, then move on. Now, where can my listeners go to learn more about what you're doing and offer some support? So it is NewMexicoLegalAid.org, all one word. Okay. We'll make sure that they go there. I want to thank you very much for giving us some information about what's happening with farm workers all over the state. He's Ismael Camacho the staff attorney for the Farm Worker Project with New Mexico Legal Aid. Thanks again, my friend. Thank you for reaching. I appreciate it. Here with me now 
is Felipe Guevara. He works as a civil rights attorney with the New Mexico Center on Law and Poverty. Felipe, thanks for being with me. Thank you for inviting me. So early on in the pandemic, you wrote to the state about agricultural workers saying that they were looking for safety information and basic sanitation help, like clean drinking water, hand washing facilities, that kind of thing. Have you seen some or any of those basic needs met? Health and safety continues to be a concern. It was always a concern prior to the pandemic. You know, there was always questions about whether workers were getting sufficient water, whether there was the right kind of hand washing facilities, whether there was shade provided, bathroom facilities were provided appropriately. When the pandemic hit, our concerns were elevated to a point where we felt it was necessary to reach out to the state and let them know that these conditions have always existed, that they've always been a concern, and the pandemic could just further exacerbate so many of these problems. And so we wanted the state to engage with these large community organizations down south and throughout New Mexico to really understand what were those conditions and how could they start to work on that to ensure that it wasn't going to be compounded by the pandemic and that the pandemic wasn't going to create even worse conditions on these farms. Mm -hmm. Now, the Center of Law and Poverty released a whole list of public health problems for these workers and outlined what the state of New Mexico could do to prevent them. Do you feel that the state was responsive? We have yet to hear from the state regarding these health and safety conditions that we outlined to them. Some of the things that we talked about were the way that the community itself exists and works in Southern New Mexico. Mm -hmm. And so we were trying to highlight these things and ask them to come to the table so that we could speak about them, so that we could help them brainstorm how we could potentially go about protecting these communities and ensuring that these conditions weren't exacerbated by the pandemic. And we've yet to get a response. Now, have you heard of any outbreaks among agricultural workers with COVID-19? I have heard of examples, particularly on dairies right now, where workers are getting sick and we've recently heard of an example of one worker passing away and we know that at a farm worker center down in El Paso which actually brings farm workers into southern New Mexico there was a large outbreak there and they all had to quarantine for about two weeks unfortunately one of the workers fell very ill had to go into the hospital and passed away as well so we've heard of these kind of localized instances and we are starting to hear more and more that in those communities there is a fear that COVID is more rampantly picking up and sort of spreading throughout the community. We're starting to enter harvest season. And exactly. question for you, like, does that increase the dangers for people as more folks are going to be out in the fields? Absolutely. We have heard instances of some farmers doing really well in terms of asking their farm workers to spread out. But that was at the beginning of the season where groups were much more limited and much smaller. Now we're seeing much larger groups and we're not necessarily sure that the proper measures are being taken at each of those farms to ensure that there is six feet of distancing, even if it's going to slow down the process a bit, but that people are doing it correctly. Well, I want to thank you very much for giving us information and letting us know about the situation that's happening with farm workers across the state. Hope to have you on the show again soon so we can talk about any developments, particularly if the state gets back to you. I'd love to talk to you about that discussion. Great. And thank you so much for inviting us. You know, many people have taken time during the year of social distancing to bake, create new recipes, or in some cases, learn to cook. We've got a very colorful meal here. I think these beautiful 
fresh, 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 fresh green beans, bright orange squash and scallop potatoes, beautiful tenderloins. But what about those whose access to food is not as easy as opening Instacart or DoorDash? For the rest of the show, we hear from a couple of folks who are helping make sure people have something to eat. My next guest is the secretary for the Department of Workforce Solutions, Secretary Bill McCamley. Secretary McCamley, thanks for being on the show again. You bet, Khalil. Good afternoon to you and everybody listening. Yes, sir. Um, Let me ask you, the unemployment rate in New Mexico is higher than the national average right now, just by a little bit, like a 12.0% here and a 10.2% in the rest of the country. Are you alarmed by this trend? What that actually shows, firstly, it jumped a lot this month from last month. And the reason being is a lot of people were saying to the folks conducting the surveys that they used to get these rates, Mm -hmm. that they weren't unemployed. They were still temporarily furloughed. Unfortunately, the longer this whole pandemic drags on, the more people start actually looking for other jobs. And so what you saw in that increase wasn't really about an increase in the amount of people that are on unemployment. It was a change in the way they're looking at the situation and the fact that they need to try to go out and find other jobs. In terms of the rate itself, why it might be a little higher, what you see around the country is that the states with a lot of financial services, agricultural services, all these kind of quote unquote essential jobs or places where you can work from home, you tend to have a slightly lower unemployment rate here in New Mexico where we rely very heavily on tourism, Mm -hmm. on the oil and gas industry, you start to see that being reflected. This is why that is so important. Since the numbers necessarily aren't changing with the new claims, will this affect the capacity to process any claims that are happening now or in the future? No, because we really haven't seen that much of a change in our situation. If anything, the amount of people on the unemployment rolls has started decreasing a little bit. It's been a trend over the last three or four weeks that we've seen where we haven't seen a massive drop because people do still need help. What we've seen though is some people are starting to come off the rolls and the people that need to be on are on. So we haven't seen as many initial claims. Now I will say this, it was a real disappointment to everybody in the administration and the governor was very clear on this, how Congress didn't come together to come up with a comprehensive package to help people is really going to hurt us. Mm -hmm. And that's not just in the unemployment realm where people were getting that additional $600 a week that was allowing them to pay for rent, food, childcare, all of these very critical needs. But when we don't get funding for schools and when you don't get help for the frontline healthcare employees, that are busting their tails and taking tons of risk, helping people with their healthcare scenarios, it makes it hard for me to get people back to work. A few weeks ago, the Washington Post did a very, very stark analysis of the situations in Arizona and the situations in New Mexico. And what happened in early May was that Arizona opened up a lot faster and opened up a lot more things, gyms, bars, restaurants, massage parlors, barbershops, the whole shemang, right? Mm -hmm. And we took a much more measured, steady approach here. And what happened was a lot more people got sick, a lot more people went to the hospital, and unfortunately a lot more people died. Mm -hmm. And then the governor over there had to actually start closing things down again. And so by the beginning of July, the economic output of Arizona and New Mexico was almost exactly the same, except there were three times as many dead people in Arizona than New Mexico. Yeah. 
How are New Mexico's funds for unemployment looking? Are they depleted? And if so, what's the plan for making sure the money is there for people throughout this pandemic and then through the economy as we get into the recovery process? Sure. So people on the unemployment system should not worry at all. We are depleting our unemployment trust fund from state funds. That will probably be completely depleted sometime in the first week or two of September. However, we got on the ball. Our staff were really fast to be able to get to the federal government and borrow money from them. This is something that almost half the states in the country are now doing. Mm -hmm. You borrow money from the federal government to boost your funds for however long you need. And then, yes, you eventually have to pay it back. But at least until the end of the year, that's also at 0% interest. So what that means, long and short, is that people getting unemployment don't need to worry. The other thing that they do need to, to kind of take note of, though, is in New Mexico, you have a length of time of 26 weeks when you are eligible for standard unemployment programs. And so a lot of people got on in the last part of March. They're going to run out of their standard program in the last part of September. Yeah. But as part of the CARES Act, which was a very successful piece of legislation that was passed by Congress uh, in March, like I said, we really wanted them to do something similar again. But part of that act was to extend people's eligibility for unemployment by 13 weeks. So if someone is running out of their weeks, all they have to do is go to their online account in the week that they have exhausted their regular benefits, click apply for benefits. There's a really short form should take you about three minutes to fill out and then you'll be on for another 13 weeks and have all of the same exact benefits that you were having before. Okay. Okay. Let me ask a question about what's happening in the office. How are you and the employees at the offices? How are you all holding up? Yeah, uh, it's a very good question. <laughs> Look, I'll, I'll be honest with you. We're in a place right now where the stories that you hear are, are hard mm-hmm. and you hear about people that are worried about paying the rent. Yeah, it, it's it's not easy. There's a lot of people in a lot of really tough spots right now, and we're just trying to treat everybody with as much dignity and patience and compassion as we can. I understand that there's a lot of different scenarios and situations that can <laughs> pop up. We talked to the New Mexico Center on Law and Poverty yesterday afternoon And they brought up some concerns with DWS. They said that the Department of Workforce Solutions overpaid some people. Did this happen? And if so, why? What happened was this. If you remember back in April with the Pandemic Unemployment Assistance Program, Mm -hmm. the need for that was so great that we rushed like crazy to be able to get that program implemented so we could get money in people's pockets. I don't know if you remember, but oh, I do. The, the hunger for help from these self-employed folks who were getting nothing was one of the most intense things I've ever experienced. Mm-hmm. And so we got the program up and running. I think we got the first directions out on the 23rd of April. Unfortunately, we got new updated rules from the U.S. Department of Labor. And we have to walk a little bit of a tightrope because the we're a state agency we are completely funded by the federal government. That pandemic unemployment assistance program is completely federally funded. Mm -hmm. So if we don't follow their rules, then we can get cut off. The pandemic unemployment assistance program for the self-employed required tax records for people 
to verify their income. We thought, hey, look, the Internal Revenue Service at the time extended their deadline for people filing their taxes into July. So we said, hey, look, you can turn in your 2018 or your 2019 taxes. That next week, we got updated rules from the Department of Labor saying they had to be 2019 taxes. I don't know why. Yeah. That was in place. I, I honestly don't. I've never heard an explanation about why that was the case, but we had to follow their rules. So we immediately updated our rules. Um, but unfortunately, a lot of people had either uploaded their 2018 taxes or they hadn't filed their 2019 taxes yet at all. Mm-hmm. And so what that created was after three weeks, we had to go through and say, if you haven't gotten your most recent information in, we have to bring you down to the minimum benefit. And if you've already got three or four weeks of payments, Obviously, that means you have an overpayment. What our system does is trigger that as fraud. Now, we have been working as hard as we can with claimants in that situation. We have payment plans for people who are getting overpaid. And as soon as people did upload their 2019 taxes, we've been working as hard as we can to fix that situation and make sure that people get the benefits that they earn. Okay. But yeah, we've been following the rules as closely as we can. And to be honest with you, That's one of the reasons we're taking a little bit more time with this new lost wages program through the Federal Emergency Management Agency. Mm -hmm. You see some states really rushing to get checks out and we know that people need this money. We are completely and utterly aware of the need out there right now, but we also wanna make sure that we're dotting our I's and crossing our T's on these rules because we don't wanna create a situation that's gonna do more harm than good for people. I understand. Now in these rules that you got sent, Was it a difference between looking at net income versus the gross income? Was that a change in the rules? No, that that was actually something that was a misunderstanding. And we tried to be as clear as we could with this. But what you need to do when you're applying for this is put in your net income Mm -hmm. and your, your taxable income. And, you know, some people, especially self employed folks, really like to knock that down so that their tax rate goes down. Yeah. But we need that same amount. There was a difference of understanding there, mm-hmm. and we've tried very, very hard to let people know that, hey, net income is what you have to use. Whatever you're getting taxed on mm-hmm. is the amount that we need in our system. Okay. Now, were a bunch of people overpaid, and how is the department going to try to get some of that money back? Yeah, so there, there were some people that were overpaid. For the folks that were in the situation where they had to upload their taxes, as soon as they get their 2019 taxes in, we can look at those and say, okay, this is your income and we'll fix it and we'll make it right. And if there was an overpayment that we took money out of by the time we get the 2019 taxes, we'll give you all that money back. For the people that entered their gross income rather than their net income, mm-hmm. what we did was say, hey, look, we're not going to go through our traditional collections process. What we'll do is just say for the rest of the time that you're on eligibility for unemployment, we'll make sure we just withhold half of the payment until it's being made up for, and then you go back to the normal payment. Okay. They say legally the department's supposed to provide adequate notice and opportunity for hearing to get that Mm -hmm. money back that was overpaid. Did that happen? Yeah, so there's an appeals process. If people disagree with the the folks that are making the decisions on the front end in the department, they can appeal to what is called an appeals tribunal and make their case. And eventually they can appeal to me as the department secretary. And so, uh, you know, I had about 55 of them today come in Hmm. where people were appealing directly to me. And it's not just for overpayments. I think we only had one or two overpayments today, but there's issues regarding backdates. There's issues regarding what we call separations, where there's disagreements about who decided 
in a situation where a job was terminated, that that job was terminated. Because in unemployment, remember, if I leave my job voluntarily, I have to provide what is legally called good cause Mm -hmm. before I can get unemployment. And so there's disagreements about that. So our appeals tribunal is working very, very hard to try to, to process as many of these as they possibly can. Obviously, our volume is much, much, much greater than it normally is, but our people are working hard and we're, we're hiring new people for that process to help make sure that folks get taken care of as soon as we can. The Center on Law and Poverty asked to meet with you to resolve some of the problems toward the end of July, but they say they didn't hear back. Do you intend to meet with them to discuss these issues? Right, so we're meeting with claimants on an individual basis. And as claimants come in, you know, we're doing our best we can to provide them the information they need to run through the process mm-hmm. and move forward on that. Yeah, the other situation is we're in a settlement agreement right now with the Center for Law and Poverty okay. on a different situation. And so it somewhat restricts our ability to work with that organization in particular. But we've worked with other organizations as well when they've had issues with groups of people that they feel are not being treated fairly when they feel that things could get changed. And we're working with everyone we possibly can. And we're trying to make the system better every single day. We know that it's not perfect. We know that we need to strive every day to add more resources and try to make it simpler and frankly, more understandable for a lot of people. And that's what we're trying. Now, finally, we're talking about accessibility. The center also told us today that legally, you are supposed to provide translation services and that isn't happening as it should. They're talking about this has been a problem for many years. What are the barriers with, with getting translation services and how are you all working on that? Sure, so on our phone lines, we actually have translation services available in Spanish. We have a complete Spanish line. Furthermore, we use a translation company to help with individuals who call in. I think there's 26 or 27 different languages that this service provides, and we're able to help make sure that they've got the translation services they need to get help. I'll give you an example. We had a guy show up at our office. He was of Iranian descent, and he spoke Persian. Mm-hmm. Now, his English was okay, but the vernacular we use in our system can be a little complicated. He wanted to make sure he got everything right. So we were able to get him on the line with one of our good call center operators and a Persian translator and get that taken care of. I will say we're working very hard to get our website completely translated into Spanish. It is extremely complicated because you have to work the language into all the internal code of our system. Mm -hmm. And that's not just, you know, changing a website. It's, a lot more detailed and in-depth and we were working on that (laughs) pretty hard right before the pandemic hit and then all of our resources had to go to getting all these new cares act things put into place now we have resumed working on that we actually got a translator hired specifically for this purpose and our goal was to get it up by labor day unfortunately with the lost wages assistance program that just came out that's a whole new program with a whole new federal agency fema that we're working with and it's required us to make sure our resources uh, kind of get put into that so we can get money to people's pockets. But as soon as that's over, you know, we're going to get right back on the horse and work on getting the website process up and running so we can get it fully accessible in Spanish. So we'll, we'll try to get that up as, as soon as we possibly can. Do you have a rough estimate when you think of when as soon as you possibly can will be a date? Can you put a date on that? I cannot because we're working really right now on that lost wages assistance program, the $300 per week. That came out a couple of weeks ago, and it is... Look, Khalil, I I understand that 
people need services and the translation is critical. I get it. And that's right. But people also need money in their pockets right now. We have a ton of people facing evictions. They're having trouble paying their utilities. They're having trouble with childcare. And we hear it every single day. And so that's got to be right now our absolute number one priority. So we're working to get that in place as soon as we can, dot all our I's, cross all our T's, and move forward. And then we're going to, like I said, work to get that translated website up as soon as we can after that. All right. He is Secretary of Workforce Solutions, Bill McCamley. Thank you very much for being with me again. Thank you, Cliff. Here with me from Roadrunner Food Bank is Sonia Warwick. She is the communications officer. Sonia, how's it going? Like everyone, we're, we're just rolling with the punches and doing what we can every day to try to continue to serve people who are facing hunger. That's right. That's right. That's what we have to do. Now, let me ask you, in mid-July, Roadrunner Food Bank produced a findings from a study that claims that food insecurity will increase due to the COVID-19 pandemic. Can you tell me some of the details that you discovered in that study? Really what the study showed is that throughout the pandemic, we expect hunger to increase very significantly throughout probably the rest of this year and into next. Mm. The study specifically looked at unemployment rates and the fact that as those increase, people will fall further behind and that will often mean that they become food insecure as they face poverty. And it showed for New Mexico that one in three children could potentially be at risk of hunger during the pandemic. And roughly 21% of people overall, which is about one in five New Mexicans. And I think what's shocking too is so many of our rural counties are even in worse and dire straits. You know, when we look at unemployment and childhood rates of hunger attached to this study, we have numbers of counties who have potentially 42, 43, 44, 47% of kids in those counties potentially experiencing hunger during the pandemic. So we're very concerned. We're very, very concerned. Now, how does the the recognition and understanding of those numbers really impact what you all at Roadrunner and similar organizations, what you do and what you're attempting to do for families? We know that demand will grow. We know that food lines will be long. We know that emergency food services that we provide on the ch- in the charitable sector will continue to be much needed as we go through this pandemic. We distributed a record amount of pounds this year, 40 million pounds to New wow. Mexicans in need. We know that that 40 million has got to grow. Now, how does this looming potential eviction crisis factor into all of this? Oh, most definitely. You know, um, we do foresee that the potential increase of people who are going to be experiencing homelessness is a real risk. It could potentially show that more and more of our fellow neighbors right here in our state are going to be falling into significant levels of poverty. Does the inaction of Congress to get another relief packets passed, does that exacerbate this situation with families and the burden upon you all? I think so. Some of the funding that helps supplement food that came into food banks like ours and across the country came out of some of those coronavirus packages. It was supplemental food that we could take in and distribute. And without some of those measures in place, that could definitely impact the food that we typically receive from federal government agencies, specifically USDA. Is there anything that the state can do and what has the state done to help? We do have staff who sit on calls regularly with state officials so they understand 
understand some of that. They were very helpful in making sure that we could increase distributions, uh, and not just for Roadrunner, but the other food banks as well, in tribal lands, for example. And that's meant that we've been able to provide about 20 to 24 percent additional food than we were previously providing to some of our Native communities. Have you been able to partner with private entities such as local restaurants and business owners to help with your efforts? There's been a lot of local folks who've raised their hand to help. September, just so you know, is Hunger Action Month. And while this issue is definitely pressing, I think, for all of our community in terms of the pandemic, Hunger Action Month is a great activity and you can do simple things to help organizations like ours or a hunger relief organization in your community. Appreciate all of the work you do, as I'm sure the rest of the state does as well. She's the communications officer at Roadrunner Food Bank, Sonia Warwick. Thanks again for being with me. Nicole Garcia, case manager at the Transgender Resource Center of New Mexico, joins me to talk about an often forgotten community. Thanks for being on Nimono. Thank you. I appreciate being here. So the Transgender Research Center has long been creating food access here. What programs or services do you all offer? Typically what we do is we offer one meal for folks to come in during our drop-in hours. They can just get one more meal in their bellies. We're often the only place that our particular community can be able to access food. So it's very important to us that we're able to kind of be there. We offer food pantries. Our chairwoman has also started a program which is called Bunny Bags. So it's like quick snack accessible stuff for the days that we're not here just to provide those warm meals. Now, you said that often it's the only place where clients can get food. What are the barriers that they're facing? For our community in particular, it's their being their their authentic selves is the barrier. So most often than not, it's being comfortable in a place where they can be able to express themselves authentically and genuinely. If they are able to access other places, it may prevent them from being that authentically genuine person. So sometimes they will tend to shy away from that just because of that particular barrier. Is it from a lack of support and family and friends? It could be family, friends, societal expectations. Mm -hmm. We've all experienced some type of pressures societally, familiarly. to be somebody who we may not necessarily be or to express ourselves in a certain way because of these expectations and like these gender roles and these requirements that society has kind of like bared down on us. It kind of spans all of the different levels. Have you all seen a demand for your food programs increase? Yes, definitely. Being the case manager here at the center, I do food support in other ways. So we can set up Walmart delivery or pick up here at the center. So that's at no cost to clients. Our pantry bags and our bunny bags, we've just kind of seen those go out the door daily. Mm -hmm. Um, Because the need has been so great because of economic stress or whatever else is going on in those individuals' lives. How can people help out? Drop off whatever you can. I mean, we definitely believe that like food accessibility is something that is just so important to our community. My contact information is 505-389-3273. I want to thank you so much for being on the show and thank you for the work that you're doing. She is Nicole Garcia, case manager at the Transgender Resource Center of New Mexico. Thanks again, Nicole. Thank you. Have a great day. All right. So we agreed on the need for food, shelter and health care, right? Are we settled on that? Cool. But what about our mental wellness and access to care? With the year that 2020 has proven to be, and we're about to hit month nine, it's imperative that we get a hold of our collective and individual mind states. Next week on the Mono, we talk mental wellness. 
We're going to pad the online post for this show with all the resources we can find about shelter, food, and healthcare. If you haven't heard about something that you think can help you out during this hour, KUNM.org is where to look. For more details on health care and bills, hit up the State Department of Health, 505-277-0367. Superintendent of Insurance, the hotline is 1-833-415-0566. Searchlight New Mexico has created a database of all the inspection reports to the nursing homes and their current status. Text Searchlight to 505-427-2777. For help with housing, hit up the City of Albuquerque Attorney General's Office, 505-717-3500 or 1-844-255-9210. That is toll free. And a good starting place for food no matter where you are in the state, Roadrunner Food Hotlines. Go to rrfb.org slash find dash help slash find dash food. Know a resource that we don't know about yet? Hit us up at no.mo.normal at gmail.com. normal at gmail.com. Easy to remember. Thanks to KUNM News Director Hannah Colton for her story. Many thanks to Ty Bannerman and Megan Kamrick for the editing help. Thanks to Rachel Papauser and Robbie Shug for the artwork this week. And for last week's show on education, thanks to artist Nani Chacon for letting us use the images from Resilience. Music for the show is produced by Jazz Tone, the producer, Cheo, Dom Life, Fresh Air, and Olad Records. Khaki, Pope Yes Yes Y'all, and Bigawatt composed some of the show's themes. No More Normal is executive produced by Marisa DeMarco, produced and hosted by yours truly. I'm Khalil Lekelona. For everyone here at Nomono, thanks for listening.